We are in our series entitled Live to Give, looking at the entirety of our lives because uh, under God's supremacy. All too often when we think of the word stewardship, the first thought that comes to mind is money. Money. But that's not true because we are stewards of so much more than money. All of our lives are to be, to be under Christ's supremacy. That there, Jesus Christ wants all of us, not just a part of us, but all of us. So these last, last week we started off, looked at our time. This week we're looking at our talent. And I think of the word talent, I don't know about you, but I think of the, the plethora of TV shows out there today. America's got talent, or Britain's got talent. Right? Undoubtedly, we've, you're familiar at least with the show. I think of the, the, there's other versions in other countries. Korea's got talent. Britain's got talent. Germany's got talent. All these countries have talent. And I, I think of the reason why I, I even know the show is because of Susan Boyle. Do you remember her? Remember the 47-year-old Scottish woman? She walks out to the platform in front of the judges. She does not look like your typical contestant to be on a reality uh, show. Her talent. I mean, she's she's uh, again. She's 47 years of age. She's she's single lady. She's got peppery gray hair. She's got a little sass to her when she walks out. And they they asked her. They said, "What's your dream?" And she says, "I want to be a professional singer." And they asked her, "Why aren't you a professional singer?" And she goes, "I've never had the chance." And people are kind of smirking. They said, "Well, what are you going to sing?" She said, "I'm going to sing. I dreamed a dream uh, from the musical Les Misérables." Okay, so everybody's kind of smirking to themselves. They pan across the audience and see these people just kind of laughing. And then she starts to sing. And you see the transformation across the crowd. And then she's now exalted into this international star, making CDs and records, and she becomes a professional singer. Now, she's not the first one. I mean, there was another man by the name of Paul Potts. He was a cell phone salesman. And he walks up, and everybody's kind of laughing at him in the same way. And he wants to sing one of the most difficult songs for a man to sing, Nessun Dorma. One of those songs that Pavarotti would sing. And it's a difficult song, and he just blows the audience away. Now, I look at that from a secular realm, and I think everybody just loves those kind of stories. And not just Paul Potts or Susan Boyle, but even other people that, that get this opportunity that never had it before, and they're just exalted in front of everybody. Think of the, the young man, Grayson Chance. I don't know if you've heard about this boy, whose dad videotaped him at a recital at his uh, junior high school, and he's singing a song, gets put on YouTube, and now this kid becomes an international sensation. I mean, he's got so much talent. I mean, he's getting like 75 million hits. I mean, he got pretty popular in his junior high very fast. <laughs> but the point is, is that all these people that weren't otherwise known, they needed this opportunity to share their talent. Now, I look at the secular view and I go, hey, America's got talent, but do you know what? God has given us talents. And I'd like, I've tentatively titled this message, The Search for Significance, but if I would put a subtitle underneath it, it would be, The Church Has Got Talent. And I'm not talking just about getting up front and singing and having everybody adore you. I'm not talking about that whatsoever. I'm talking about that God has gifted every single individual who has ever trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior a gift. Every single person, without exception doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, God gives you certain spiritual gifts. 
Now, not only does he give you spiritual gifts, but he also gives us natural gifts and natural talents. The book of James chapter 1 says that every good gift comes from God. Every, and we, we all have different gifts that we, we fail to realize on a daily basis. And we're to be good stewards of these gifts. And we, sometimes we don't know what to do with them. These gifts, these not only spiritual gifts, but natural gifts, all of these things God has given us, He expects us to be good stewards of. But many of us don't even know we have a gift or have this talent, as it were. But the Bible says that each one of us has been given a gift of the Spirit for the common good. For everybody else to, to serve, to be together. And we feel most significant when we use those gifts. You know, a few years ago, the book came out, if you remember, uh, The Purpose Driven Life. Yeah, everybody knows the book by Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Community Church in California. Now, I believe the reason that book, I mean, it, it just flew off the shelves. I mean, when, you're, when you get your book in Walmart, you know that you've struck a nerve. Okay? And this book struck a nerve because it talked about purpose. If you ever read the book, I'm, I'm actually surprised because, it, I hate to say it, but it's rather generic in that he's just stating some very basic principles of the Scripture. The reason I think that it struck a nerve is because in our postmodern world today, everything is different. Everything is different. What I mean by that is, is there's no purpose. People don't know what they're here for. I mean, we're, we're taught to question the roles of men and women. I mean, we're even questioning now in, in secular circles, not in the church, but in secular circles, what is marriage? I mean, our children are going to schools where they're questioning everything. Everything that we've understood, for those who have been around for a significant period of time, understood that everything has shifted in these past several years. And it's like we have no meaning. You can't say something is true. You can't say that is bad. You can't say this. And we're just floating aimlessly without an anchor out on the, the, the oceans of life. But see, the Bible desires to anchor us, to show us to know that there is a purpose. God has created us for a purpose. As the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 7 says, God has created us for His glory. He's created us with a purpose. As Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, that we are created for good works. We have a purpose. God has made and fashioned you uniquely as you are and placed you in this situation today for a reason. You're not here by mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. We make mistakes. How many of you have ever made a mistake? Yeah, every single hand better be up. Why is my wife not raising her hand? I'm, no, she is. She is. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But every single one of us have been made for a reason. And we are, to be, we are to use these gifts and talents to glorify God. Because when we're using our gifts, we experience the delight of God, the smile of God. God, as John Piper has so eloquently said, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. And we find our satisfaction in God when we are doing what we are made to do. I've used this story many times. Eric Little, the Scottish missionary, who's very famous. You know, he, he, was, the, he was also an Olympian. And he said, God made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. The idea is, is that God made me for a reason. When I'm doing it, I experience the joy of God. Now, each one of us here, in our search for significance, we need to find out what, does, what have we been made that gives us joy. Because when we do that, God delights in us when we're satisfied in him. Uh, have you ever met someone that when they, when they find out what they're, they're doing a job for the first time and they, they feel delighted to have accomplished something? That's how it is to be all the time. 
delighting to do what God has made us to do. Not to mean that we're not going, not to say that we're not going to have doldrums, not to say that we're not going to have difficulties, but we're going to find our delight in God when we find what He has made us to do, when we, we find the, the end of that search for significance. So today we're, we're looking in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. And Peter wrote this uh, sometime during the, the mid-60s, during what is known, most popularly known as the Neronian persecution under Emperor Nero. He's writing from the city of Rome, and he's writing to the people and trying to encourage them to, to have hope in the midst of suffering, to say, hey, you know what? <laughs> the world is, the end is near. The end is near. And when we hear that even term, I think some of us picture the guy with the, the placard in New York walking around. The end is near. The end is near. But the Bible is true that the end is near. All of these things that have happened to put the prophecies in place that Christ can come at any time. And Peter knew that. And it might seem like for some of us, I mean, a lot's happened in the last 2,000 years. I mean, has it not? For some of you who've been around for a period of time, a lot's happened in your, your generation. For those that are older, I, I, I like to ask sometimes, what was the first car you remember? that you remember your parents having. I did this one time at my church when I was in Massachusetts, and we had a, a, a fellowship dinner, and I intentionally put the older and the younger together. It was great, because we had, we had all these younger people that were coming in in their late teens and their early 20s, and then we had the crowd that was over 70, and not a lot in between. So we tried to bridge this generational gap. And I sat down, and I said, I walked around to the tables, and I just threw out questions, and I let them talk. And I said, who's the first president you can remember? And one young man, he goes, Bill Clinton. A woman across from him, she goes, Herbert Hoover. <laughs> what was the first car you remembered? He says, a Nissan, and he goes, a Honda Civic. She goes, Model T. I mean, that's, it, it was just neat seeing this bridge of generations coming together in community. This bridging this gap as these people were not only finding out who one another was but, and is, but who, who or how they all could come together, fellowship together, and then glorify Christ is a body. Now, we're looking at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, but we'll be reading from verse 11, actually verse 7 through verse 11. Now, it's our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word, so I would ask you to stand with me. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of God's Word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves in the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence today. Lord, we have that search for significance, and we know that you have made us, that you have fashioned us. As David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, you have made each one of us for a reason. You have allowed us even to go through certain circumstances, and you've given us certain gifts, and you have the means by which we are to glorify you. Lord, speak to us today. Show us your word. Show us your truth. Help us to abandon any fear, but help us to look in you, at you in faith, taking a hold of the purpose for which you have made us and fashioned us. We pray that you bless our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You may be seated. So as we're jumping into this, Peter is talking about our, our true significance. And he, he starts off and he says, our true search for significance is found when we have the right motivation. Motivation. Look at verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. And of all things is near. Now, they could have been going through persecution at that, mis- at that period of time, and he could have been looking at it close at hand, but I don't think so. I think he's looking at it saying that the, the prophecies of Christ have come. See, the purpose of the Jewish race was to bring about the coming of the Messiah, God's anointed one. And they all looked with an expectation at his coming. That's why if you ever read the book of Matthew chapter 1, and you have all the begats in there that some of you skip almost every single time. You go, okay, okay, chapter 2. Let's get to the, the Christmas hymn part. Oh, come, oh, come, that part. And it, but you're missing a huge part because the reason that was included within the Scripture is so that the Jewish writers could see. And they, they, were, I mean, they were studying and they were saying, okay, he has to come from this certain lineage. He has to be a son of Abraham. He has to be a descendant of Isaac. He has to be of the, from Jacob. He has to be of the fourth child, Judah. And he also has to be a, oh, a son of David. So it's going through and it's listing all that on. And all these prophecies that we see within the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. Either in his first coming or they, if they have yet to be fulfilled, they'll be fulfilled at his second coming. So Peter is saying the end of all things is near. It's coming. Christ is coming again. Jesus Christ is coming. You know, John MacArthur, not, uh, not John MacArthur, Gen- General Douglas MacArthur, excuse me, was driven out of the Philippines by the Japanese invasion. He said this, I shall return. And return he did. Before our Lord left this earth, he said, I will return. And believe me, he's a lot more dependable. Because no one's going to hold him back. But see, this world is continuing on. And people say, hey, it's been 2,000 years. Look at all the stuff that we have today. I mean, people couldn't even envision this. So many years ago. I mean, cell phone. (laughs) I mean, think of all the different inventions that we have today. Computers, iPads, all these different things that we have. I mean, just a few generations ago, that was seen impossible. (laughs) But now we have all this technological advances. That doesn't sweat God. Doesn't sweat Him at all. Matter of fact, we look at 2,000 years and we see the proliferation of sin and we see just the, the continuation of, of uh, all kinds of wickedness and tra- people trying to rename it and do all of these different things. That doesn't stop the purposes of God. Not at all. Matter of fact, Psalm 2 even talks about how the nations rage and the people plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed one. But it says then, God laughs. So it makes God laugh. And people try to stand up against Him. It's like, are you seriously? Do you think that this is going to hurt me? It's not going to hurt me at all. I'm coming again. And I'm going to, I mean, the the whole sky is going to just be pulled back like a curtain. And we will see him as he is. He came the first time as the suffering servant. servant. Second time he's coming as the conquering king. I mean, it's, it's not going to be a time of, oh, you know, oh, it's okay. I'll ignore it and go back to my, playing my game online. No, no, no. No one can hide. No one can hide. No one can escape at that moment in time. So Peter is telling the end of all things is at hand. It's near. So, therefore, he says this is what you need to do. So the proper motivation is understanding that it's going to end. It's coming. He's coming back. 
You know, you need to be ready to go. Some people say, again, it's been 2,000 years since the coming of Jesus the first time. And it's so much. We've had so many advances in technology, medicine, travel, and all these things, the globalization. But Peter reminds us in his second letter, but do not overlook this one fact. He goes, I'm going to remind you of something that you need to pay very close attention to. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. Time, as we know it, is long. God, it's like that. I mean, it seems forever to us, not to God. He experiences time completely differently than we do. So if God were to experience time, even though He Himself created it and dwells outside of it, it's been two days, while for us it's been 2,000 years. Jesus is going to come again, and we need to be aware of that. This life is passing in a moment. As C.T. Studd, the great missionary between the 19th and 20th century, he said this, and many of you are familiar with this refrain, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. That's when people's deeds will be revealed for what they are. Everything else is going to be burned up. And we will see whether or not we've met, we have trusted in God's Christ and what we have done has met His approval. This life is passing away and we, might, we must be ready because the end is coming, which means there's going to be a time of judgment and reward. Now, people don't like those terms today. What right does God have to judge me? Are you kidding me? What do you mean, what right does God have to judge you? He's God. He's your creator. He's your sustainer. Because of him, you can take a breath right now. He's created this earth that rotates on a certain axis that if it were to go off one degree, we would hurtle out into space. God upholds it by his sovereign hand that he's given you life, breath. He didn't, you didn't just create yourself with the ability to think and understand. God made you that way. He could have made you any other way that he wanted to. But he didn't. He gave you the ability to understand because of his goodness and because he loves us. That we need to understand that we are going to be held to give an account for our life. For all of us, every single person in this room, without exception, is going to stand before God's judgment. It says man is destined to die once and then face judgment. And each one of us will give an account. As, as even Peter just wrote in the previous verses, in the previous section, he says that he is coming and he will judge the living and the dead. That he, he has the ability to do that because he is the sovereign judge and the creator of all things. And that we are accountable to him. So we need to understand that there's judgment coming and there's also reward coming. Now some say, oh, we shouldn't use reward as a basis. Well, then you're contradicting the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Completely, all the way through Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, great is your reward. Great is your reward. Great will your reward be. Now, we are going to give and take these crowns that we receive and lay them at His feet in praise. We're not going to be walking around jealous of one another because then it wouldn't be heaven. We're going to be eternally delighting in God, overflowing in joy to others of who God is and what He means to us. So our true search for significance is found when we have the right motivation and also the right mindset. Look at verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, Peter's giving a command here. We are, to, we are stewards, and stewards are called to be, first of all, self-controlled. The word here means to be of sound mind, to be temperate. Kenneth Weiss 
who uh, is a Greek scholar, comments on this word. And he writes that it means this, to be of sound mind, to exercise self-control, to curb one's passion. And he, and another scholar, speaks of the word as habitual self-government with its constant reign on all the passions and desires. We have self-control. Plato, the philosopher, referred to this classical Greek word as the mastery of desire and pleasure. Do you have mastery over your appetites? Do you have mastery? And you can control whether or not you sin. You know that? People say the devil made me do it. No. If you have the Spirit of God within you, then God's Word says unequivocally that you now have the ability to control yourself. That you don't have to give in to sin. Well, I was tempted. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no man is tempted beyond what he can bear. But God is faithful. He will give you a way out when temptation comes. I mean, some would say, well, I I couldn't help myself. Well, look, look at Joseph. Joseph is with Potiphar's wife. He doesn't even want to be around her because she's continually making advances toward him. Finally, she gets so desperate, she just throws herself at him. And what's he do? He takes off like Carl Lewis. I mean, he bolts. He gets out. Paul even told us, flee sexual immorality. You don't have to do it. You don't have to. You can say no. You can say no. You don't have to give in to that that temptation, whatever it may be. It could be food might be your issue. You could be a glutton. You could be a drunk. So maybe it's drink. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's stealing. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's porn. Whatever it may be, God has given you the ability to say no. Because the grace of God trains us to say no. As it's operating within the Spirit of God, as it's applying the Word of God, because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. That it's profitable for preaching, teaching, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's applying the Word of God to our situations. We can be self-controlled. We can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. As we are in the last days, we have to know how to control ourselves because sin abounds. It hides all around us. It disguises itself as innocent pleasures that everyone is doing, but we must be on guard against against it. What are the sins in our world that are keeping us from doing what God has for us to do? How worldly are we? How about that for a moment? Let's think about that. These sins that have crept in like carbon monoxide, that if we don't have the detectors of the Word of God continually washing our minds, that we would be breathing it in, this air that is killing us. This carbon monoxide of culture. It disguises itself as innocent pleasures. But we must, again, apply the Word of God to put on the glasses of the Word of God, the lenses to correct our wrong and fallen spiritual vision. John wrote this in 1 John 2 about the world. He said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, many of us have these worldly desires that have crept in that we have started to, we even sometimes baptize them as Christians but they're completely antithetical to the Word of God. We must be on guard against them. As James even says, you would 
idolatrous or adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, we must have control of our appetites, even in the things that we, we delight in that could be considered to be worldly. We have the ability to say no to sin because we have the Spirit of God within a, in us. We don't have to continue on in sin. John Piper warns us that the end is near indeed, is what he says. If anyone dallies with sin in the world thinking, I have lots of time, he plays the fool. The judge is at the door. And the time remaining should be spent in earnest prayer that we may not be made drunk and hard by the cares and pleasures of this world. See, Peter's also calling us not only to be self-controlled, but to be sober-minded, to be sober-minded, to be temperate. It literally means to be free of intoxication, not to be, not to be intoxicated. In the physical sense, the word here literally was to refer either to complete abstinence or, in a relative sense, to refer to temper, temperance, drinking but not to the point of intoxication. It calls for one to behave with restraint and moderation, not permitting excess, to be self-controlled and restrained, moderate in your behavior. So why are we to be moderate in our behavior, not giving ourselves over to all manner of things, that the newest thing, the newest fad? I mean, we think of everything that happened just recently this past May, that everybody thought the end of the world was coming. See, that wasn't being sober-minded. When everybody is selling all of their possessions and just giving it away because of the lunatic ravings of one man. And then he changes it after it happens. Changes it again. Are people surprised? He's not operating in accordance with the word of God because no one knows the day or the hour, but we do know what's coming. The important thing is being ready. Not knowing the day or the hour. Now we're to be self-controlled and have sober judgment. Why? For the sake of your prayers. We're going to come back at that in a minute. I want us to stop and actually look ahead to verse 10. Look at verse 10 for a moment. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, each of us has received a gift. Now, there are different kinds of gifts. There are natural gifts, and there are spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 gives a list of spiritual gifts. Then there are different natural abilities that we may have. But both are to be used for God's glory. We must make sure that all of these good gifts that we have and recognize they are from God and we are stewards of them. But as we have this, these spiritual gifts... Everyone has at least one. I want to say that. Everyone has at least one. Some have more. And are we being good stewards of that gift? Now, if we each have just one gift, or at least one gift, that means that every single person who is trusted in Christ has a certain ministry. That's my next point. Write that down. You have a ministry. Did you know that? Do you know what your ministry is that God has called you to do? What has God called you to do? What is it? I mean, there are the general things we're all called to do. Make disciples of all nations. We're to do that. We're to be telling people about who Jesus is. We're to be loving one another. But there are specific instances. Some, require, some are serving. Some are speaking. But what is your gift? Where do you find that delight in God? Where do you find your significance? Now, it's not just for your own selfish pleasure. That gift is not. It is for the common good. As he even says here... It's to be serving one another. As each one has received a gift, let it be to serve one another. Now, there's a little implicit or a point here that maybe you, we may not see, but it's this. 
if you're not with the body, then you can't use your gift very well to serve one another. You need, and I'm talking to the choir, to be in church. You need to be with the body of believers. Now, parachurch ministries are good, but it's not the church. You can't just substitute it willy-nilly for whatever you want it to be. You have to be with the body of believers, committing yourself to one another, which means you've got to be willing to open up your life for all of its junk. That's not easy. People today want anonymity. That's one of the reasons that I believe that megachurches do so well. I'm not speaking against them. I think that there's a point that each one of them serves. But many people want that because they don't have the accountability. They can have anonymity. They can get their spiritual fix, feel a little conviction, yet continue on in their sin because they don't want people looking into their lives. Now, now to, to give you a little point, I think many of these churches recognize that and they're trying to, to change it. I don't want to throw them under the bus. So, but they, they can't help that fact as they're, they're trying to say, hey, we want you to get into more community, to be with one another, to share our lives, to speak the truth of God into our lives. That's why our heart, one of our heartbeats here is small groups. Because that's where the real intimacy happens. Here, you come and you hear me speak or you sing the songs together, but it's in the small group where you end up sharing your life. That's where it's to be. Not just teaching. Your teacher shouldn't just be teaching everything. It should be facilitating a discussion as we share our lives and we look into the Word of God and how to apply the Word of God to all of these situations that we are struggling with. And I hope that's what your small group is. And if you've not been in one, I I ask you to plead with you to to sign up for one. To talk to me after the service, we'll get you into a small group. Now, God has given us this spiritual gift. Will you say, well, I don't have that, I don't have that gift. I don't know what it is. Well, we have even tests that you can take to find it out. But every single Christian has a spiritual gift. There's not one, one exception. Some people say, well, I'm not, I'm not that talented. I'm not that good. It doesn't matter. God says that you are. He gives you a gift without exception. We can come up with a, a bunch of excuses. And I think of individuals such as David Ring. Maybe you've heard of that name. Maybe you've heard of another name, Johnny Erickson Tata. Or maybe you think of even the Bethany Hamilton, the soul surfer. Now, what do these three have in common? Something has happened to them that could, they could easily have an excuse for why not to do something, but each one has either been born with or had something happen to them that they have used God to glorify himself with. David Ring has cerebral palsy. And he's become a pastor, an evangelist, sharing the truth of God, married with a family. Then you have Johnny Erickson Tata, a 17-year-old girl diving off the diving board of Chesapeake Bay, snaps her vertebrae, ends up being a quadriplegic. Say, it's over. I don't have the ability. I don't have, I can't even get around without assistance. Takes me 45 minutes just to get out of bed. But we know the ministry that God had for her is God has used her to speak to disabled people all over the world. And not just disabled people, to encourage and challenge many of us. Or even now, Bethany Hamilton, this girl in the, in the prime of life, just entering in, 13 years old, just, just surfing. Shark comes out of nowhere, tiger shark, and bites off her arm. And what does God do? God uses that situation to put her out. Now she's in front of audiences. She's been on CNN. She's been on The Tonight Show, The Today Show. She's been all over testifying to who Jesus is. Don't let your disability get in the way of bringing God glory. Use your disability to bring God glory. 
God can take the little, the things in our life, the sufferings that we have to bring His name great glory. God has given us each a ministry to glorify Him. Now here's something as we look within our text. We, may not, we, we need to find out what our specific ministry is, but this is something that we all can do without exception because the way we glorify God in our ministries might be a little bit different for each one of us. But here's a concept that goes across the board. Look at verse 8 for me, with, with me for a moment. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, love covering over a multitude of sins is not a new concept. The book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. James, chapter 5, verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce said this, Love covers unworthy things rather than bringing them to the light and magnifying them. It puts up with everything. It is always eager to believe the best and to put the most favorable construction on ambiguous actions. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century uh, British preacher, said this, It covers them sometimes by not seeing them. For where there is much love, we are blind to many faults, which otherwise we might see. We do not exercise the sharpness of criticism, which malice would be sure to exercise. Besides that, when love applies herself to prayer, and when, in addition to prayer, she kindly gives admonition to a beloved friend, it often happens that true Christian love does really prevent a multitude of sins. The apostle does not mean that by loving another person I shall cover my own sin, nor does he mean that the exercise of charity, love, in the common uh, acceptation of that word can cover my sin. But if I have much love to others, I may be the instrument in the hand of God for covering many of their sins in one or other of the senses I have mentioned. Wayne Grudem, a modern theologian, says this, Where love abounds in fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, and even some large ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts about to Satan's perverse delight. We're to love without limits. Do you love without limits? Are you holding other small faults against them? Are you willing to overlook small sins done against you? This applies in the church, but for those of you who are married, this really applies to you. Are you keeping a record of wrongs? I mean, there are some married couples that keep a litany of sins going back to the time that they were dating. And then when the argument heats up, they bring out the quiver full of arrows. And they stock that, and they just keep firing and firing for past transgressions that should have been forgiven and left behind. We're to be forgiving one another, to love one another as Jesus taught us to do. Let love abound and that will cover over a multitude of sins. We're also to give with gladness. Look at verse 9 for a moment. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Showing hospitality, it literally means love for strangers. And we're to do so without complaining. Now I can speak to the personal nature of this. When we were, uh, as many of you know, some uh, undoubtedly don't know, we were homeless for a period of time. Living in, we weren't living in our van, but we were living with different friends. We stayed with family for a few months, and that just it was 
not going to happen much longer. So we ended up staying with some friends. We slept in their basement. And I, I got invited to speak at the small Baptist church in Swickley, Pennsylvania, about 15 to 20 people. And a friend of ours that, that invited us uh, to this town, he knew the, the, one of the members of the church, and he told him about me. And so he invited some friends to come to the church that day, and I preached. And uh, we didn't know how long we'd be able to stay with these friends. And whenever you have people stay with you, it, gets, it can be difficult. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, guests are like fish. After three days, they start to stink. <laughs> okay. And that can, that can be. It throws us off our game. It gets us out of our comfort zone. I mean, we're living life. Sometimes we just want to let our hair down and relax. And it was stressful. The, the family we were staying with, they had four children and a new baby, and we had our, our two kids at the time. And, and it was, I mean, we're sleeping on a pull-out couch with a mattress that had seen much better days, and our kids are, are sleeping on just pillows from the couch. It was a difficult time. And I preached at this church, and this man came up to me, and he goes, I want you to come and stay in our home. I didn't even know him. I knew he was a friend of, of the, the, the friends we were staying with, and I said, thank you. And, you know, we were staying there. We were okay at that moment in time, and I was desperately looking for a job. And, and uh, I ended up preaching there again. He comes up to me again, and he goes, no, I really want you to stay in our home. And finally, we acquiesced, and we said, Okay. It just, we were, I knew we were stressing out the family we were staying with. We wanted to give them a break. So this family just met them. They invited us in their home. And, and then they did, in some ways to me, the unthinkable. I mean, I, we felt the lowest of the low at that moment in time. Like, did I do something of this? Was it an action of disobedience, God? That's why I'm here today. What, what, did I have a sin? What was wrong? What, are you punishing me? And all these questions were flowing through my mind. And I felt very unworthy of anything. And next thing I know, they, they take us in the house, and we're expecting to stay in their basement, just like we were staying in our friend's basement. And instead of taking us to the basement, they walk us to their bedroom, and it's this beautiful master bedroom. They said, we're giving you our bedroom. We want you to stay in our room. We're going to sleep on this air mattress in our kids' room. We want to honor you and have you stay here. Man, I never felt so unworthy at that moment in time. I saw, to me, that was the, the, one of the greatest demonstrations and displays of the love of Christ. I felt so loved and so unworthy. And it was a nice, it was a beautiful bedroom. And, and this couple did that for, I think it was three weeks we stayed in there. And they didn't complain once. And they said, it's a delight to have you here. That's showing hospitality. Now, it may not be having someone stay in your home for that period of time. It just could be having someone over for a meal. It could be having missionaries that we have, guests, or other different believers that we meet that might be going through a trial. But make sure that you show hospitality. As the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and 2 says, Be sure to show hospitality to strangers, for in doing so you might be entertaining angels unaware. Some of you, that really might freak you out because you may not be that good a cook. entertaining and showing hospitality to give with gladness to give with gladness without complaining hospitality is so important in the days of the early church it was so important because they often met in homes they didn't have church buildings and the early church kept traveling missionaries and apostles and a christian might not be welcome except in the home of another saint we must be careful to show hospitality because it's no less important in the church today 
We still have traveling speakers and missionaries, people that are, are going through extremely difficult times. Yes, it's going to inconvenience you. Yes, it's going to be stressful. Yes, it's going to bring out things uh, in yourself that you don't otherwise like. Yes, you're going to get irritated. All of these things, I will say unequivocally, yes, people are going to get an annoying to you. I love the family we stayed with, the first family, and I'm extremely thankful. God was a gift, and the, and, but it was not easy. I mean, they had a son that I, I really wondered if he was, you know, created by God. I mean, that kid was really tough. But it started to make me think of myself in that how God is, what I'm seeing in this child, is that me with you? Change me that I can love this little boy, can love this family as much as they're showing the love for me. Lastly, let's look at these uh, last two verses. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are to also serve with sacrifice. I realize that I just skipped over prayer. I have to come back to that in a moment. But we're to serve with sacrifice. There are two gifts that are mentioned here, types of gifts, speaking gifts and service gifts. Peter divides the spiritual gifts generally into speaking and serving gifts. Those who speak must not propound their own ideas, but faithfully declare God's word, oracles. Similarly, those who serve must not depend on their own strength, but draw their strength from God so that God alone may be glorified to serve with sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. Now, I want to go back to that low point A that I skipped over. I'm sorry that I did that, to pray with passion. See, we're to be self-controlled and have sober, be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Nothing is to hinder our prayers. Prayers are extremely important, and even our, our normal, everyday relationships can affect our prayers. Peter actually writes two cha- uh, one chapter earlier in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the, of, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Even in that, that close relationship can hinder your prayer life if it's not right. Peter cared a great deal about prayer because Jesus cared a great deal about prayer. Remember when Jesus showed anger? When he drove the money changers out of the temple? He made a whip even. See, because the temple was to be a place of prayer for all nations. God desires we pray and that we do so in faith. As the the author of Hebrews uh, wrote, he said this, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. We must pray in faith, and, and our faith should be a faith of prayer. As Ian Bounds, the great man uh, during the 19th century who wrote a great deal about prayer, he said this, when faith ceases to pray, it ceases to live. How true. Prayer projects faith on God and God on the world. Only God can move mountains, but faith and prayer move God. We need to be praying with passion. Andrew Murray, another great uh, man of God in the 19th century said this, Some people pray just to pray, and some people pray to know God. John G. Lake said this, There is a mighty, a mighty lot of difference between saying prayers and praying. How true is that? And Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, said this, Is the Son of God praying in me, or am I 
dictating to him, prayer is not simply getting things from God. That is the most, in, most initial form of prayer. Prayer is getting into perfect communion with God. If the Son of God is formed in us by regeneration, by being born again, He will press forward in front of our common sense and change our attitude to the things about which we pray. Where S.D. Gordon, a man's concept of God determines the depth of his prayer life. Real prayer begins and ends with God enthroned. Are you praying with passion? Are you praying? Period. Samuel Chadwick, very famous quote, said this, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from our prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. How true is that? So we are to pray with passion, love without limits, give with gladness, and to serve with sacrifice. Jesus came to serve. That's an amazing picture that Jesus would come to serve and take the lowest form. I mean, and that he would even wash the disciples' feet. That was the lowest task of the lowest servant within the house. And yet Jesus is doing that. He was serving. Are we serving? Are we following in his example? Are you loving without limits? Are you giving with gladness? Are you serving sacrificially or serving with sacrifice? If you want to feel significant, give yourself away in service to the Lord. Significance doesn't come by how much we achieve, but how much we give. As Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. We are given the glories of heaven by Jesus making Himself become poor, and by following His example, we also might become poor, so that others might have the glories and riches of heaven. Give yourself away and gain the glories of heaven. He who is no fool and gives what he cannot gain, or get, cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose, as Jim Elliot has said, the great missionary who was martyred in 1948. We are not saved by works, but by faith. However, we were created to do good works, and we will show our good works by our faith, to let others see Jesus in us and how we serve others. Can others see Jesus in you by your service? Can others see God being glorified in you as you're finding your satisfaction in Him? How to be significant is understanding what your talent is and how to use it for God's glory. The church has talent, but the church doesn't use it. To be significant means letting the life of Jesus show in you and through you so that, so that others might see it. Don't hinder it. Now, let me conclude with this one thought. I mean, many of us don't know what our, our talent is. I would encourage you to come to seek myself, Pastor Andrew. We can get you a test that shows what your spiritual gift is and even gives you ideas on different ministries in which you can serve. Or maybe you're here today and you're, you're trying to figure all this out. Wait a minute, I don't even understand. I, I've been given a gift. You haven't been given a gift until you've been born again. You have to be born again to understand that. There's the gift of salvation, and then there's, He gives His Spirit within you, and then He gives you a gift that He means to use, or to glorify Himself through you. So, let me ask you a question. Are you here today and you don't know who Jesus is? He is the only one who was and is truly significant. I mean, we have talent, but we only have talent because He humbled Himself to die on our behalf. 
to make us something in the sight of God. I, when I was in Connecticut speaking at the uh, youth conference, the, the singer gets up and he goes, you know, I'm famous. I thought, wow, what a jerk. Guy gets up with a microphone. He says, yeah, you know, I'm famous. People are like, really? He's famous? He's famous? He goes, yeah, Jesus knows my name. Jesus died for you. He loved you so much. He saw all the sins that you would do. And he died. He still died in your place. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is the most significant and truly only significant one because he is God's only son who gave himself so that you might live. Confess and repent of your sins. Place your faith and trust in God and he will save you from your sins. Our sins require death and hell, but Jesus came and was tempted in the same way we are, but did not sin. He lived the perfect life we could not. He died a criminal's death when there was no sin in him and rose from the dead in order that we might have new life. He gave us his life. He gave his life for us that we might not die but have everlasting life in the presence of our Savior and God. Do you know him today? Have you placed your trust and faith in him? Jesus lived to give himself. Now he offers that life to you. Will you take it? Don't wait. Do it today. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence and there are so many within this room. We hunger to be significant to be put on display for the world to see, glorifying you in the way that you desire. And Lord, while, may, while we may not receive the praise of men, Lord, we, we have to live our life before the audience of one, knowing that you are the one to whom we are accountable to and no one else. Lord, that you are the one who will judge us, you will reward us. And Lord, for those that are here that don't know you, I pray that they might repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in you right now, that they might receive the gift of salvation that has been provided to them through your son's atoning death on the cross. That they may not wait, they may not waver, that they might do so in faith, believing in